Welcome to Life Church. We are an ex 242 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through His Word and by His Spirit. Um, hope everybody's well today. Um, this has been a bit of a tricky one to prepare, I must admit to you. So if you don't mind, I'm going to pray again. <laughs> Thank you, Father, for this, this opportunity to share your word. I know that your word is powerful, um, and it's not my words that are powerful, it's your words that are powerful. Um, and I pray, Father, that you help you, me order my mind, and you help me uh, choose my words. Um, and I pray, Father, that you um, teach me as well as the people who are listening. Um, I don't want to be one of those people who, who, who preaches but then does something different. Um, help us to, to be honest and authentic people um, and to do the things that we say. Um, help us, Lord Jesus. Amen. So this morning the scripture is from 1 Kings 10, um, well, 11, but I'm going to read a little bit earlier than that. And it's about Solomon. Um, and we're going to talk about Solomon quite a lot this morning um, and then touch on a couple of other points there. Um, and hopefully... I will get some thoughts to you that uh, resonate. Um, I hope that the Lord makes it resonate for you. Um, so, 1 Kings, and I'm going to read from, verse, from chapter 10, from verse 23. Feel free to read with me. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings on, of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came bought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons, and spices, and horses and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities, and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and cedar as plentiful as sycamore figs in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kew. The royal merchants purchased them from Kew at the current price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They were also exporting them to all the kings of the Hittites and the Armenians. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from the nations which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashereth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as, his father, his, as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his wives, his foreign wives, who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. 
So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I'll not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Then the Lord raised up against Solomon an adversary, Hadad the Edomite. And then it goes on talking about the adversaries that um, came up against Solomon at the time. So Solomon, a um, bit of context, so um, God had chosen the Israelites um, to be the people that he would reveal himself to. And he said he didn't choose them because they were anything special. He just chose them because he decided to put his name on them, not because they were um, great or powerful or clever or anything. He just, he, he chose them. <laughs> and you know, sometimes God chooses us for all sorts of reasons, but often it's not because we're anything special. <laughs> um, or it's not our specialness that makes God choose us, basically. Um, and David was the second king in Israel because before that, God didn't want kings because he wanted everybody to follow God themselves. But the people followed their own hearts. Um, and that generally led to them worshipping other gods. Um, and then they would cry out to the Lord and the Lord would cleanse out the land. And we'll be, we'll be listening to um, a, couple, uh, a sermon next week about how um, uh, God would cleanse the land of, of, of idols um, and establish his name again. Um, but <coughs> King David had a really special heart. He, he was a man after God's own heart. Um, and even though King David's messed up a number of times, he still had that heart that was fully devoted to, to the Lord. Now, King Solomon was his son, um, and he started out really well. So if you turn with me to, to 1 Kings 3, um, there's, a, there's a verse there that says that, um, let me just find it quickly. Now, this is when uh, Solomon asks for wisdom. So this is the first time the Lord appears to him. Um, and uh, Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking in accordance to the instructions given to him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. So it's interesting. Solomon loved the Lord, but he, he was still doing something that maybe was not quite what the Lord had intended. He was burning incense on the high places. Now this was before they'd built the temple. So you might say, okay, well, there, there wasn't an actual centralized place for them to worship the Lord. So going up onto a mountain and offering incense, maybe, maybe not too bad. You know, he's, he's still worshiping the Lord. His heart is, is after the Lord. Um, but also, he'd made a marriage. He'd made an alliance with the king of Egypt. And it's interesting, if you look in Deuteronomy, the Lord had said to them, don't make an alliance with Egypt. You were, you were in bondage in Egypt. If you make an alliance with Egypt, it'll put you in bondage again. And Solomon had married um, the princess of Egypt, probably for political reasons. And it's interesting, the, this passage we already read, he did that 700 times. Yeah. 
700 bright wives of royal descent. It's amazing that there were 700 princesses out there. It um, makes Disney's collection of princesses look meager. Um, but So he, he had made all these marriages. And the question is really, was it because he was just a really amorous guy um, and uh, very uh, masculine and attractive and uh, was good with the women? Um, or was it also because he was doing it for political reasons, establishing his kingdom, um, putting his trust in treaties based on marriage instead of the Lord growing his, his kingdom? So there's, there are a couple of things that, that were, were happening sort of early on in Solomon's life that were sort of detracting him from from following the Lord with his whole heart. And this is really the, the, the point I want to make today, and it's really just one point. Um, we need to follow the Lord with our whole heart. Our whole heart. Um, there was a, there's, there's a, a phrase in the passage we just read that he had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And his wives led him astray. As he grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his, of his father David had been. Sorry, it was the, the verse. <laughs> I've missed the sentence. It says, Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. It's that idea of holding fast to something in love um, that it got me thinking about this interesting technology. This is Velcro, and Velcro is, is fabulous stuff. It sticks to everything, um, and it's very clever. Um, and the thing with Velcro is that if you don't put the pieces together like that, but if you keep them apart, this just, it sticks to everything. I don't know if you've put Velcro in a washing machine. Um, I've done it, and you pull it out, and it's you've got socks and clothes and jumpers and cardigans, and, and then you have to d sort of take out the little hooks from the things, and, it's, and you ruin your socks, and you ruin your jumpers, and you ruin your cardigans, because it's sticky stuff. And I think the Lord has made our hearts sticky. Sticky to stick to him. Because he's, he's given us a capacity to love. And that's, and that's what this is. It's, it's a capacity to, to clasp onto something and love it. Yeah? Because God has that capacity to love. And he created us in his image to love him. But the trouble is, because we've got a great capacity for love, if we don't use that love appropriately... It gets stuck to other stuff. And um, my, my son has a, has a bib. Now, it's a bit of a grotty-looking thing because he likes it. We, we, we used it a lot. And um, I have recently retired this bib because, I don't know if you can see from where you're sitting, the state of this Velcro. Um, there's a just a little bit of fluff left there. And um, if you take the, the hook bit and you try and attach it, 
it no longer sticks. So when our hearts are pulled in different directions and get stuck to things that are not, not the things that they should stick to and get the trouble with, with, with idols, which is what we're talking about today, is that it pulls your heart and it distorts it. And what happens is you start to lose that marvelous capacity for love that God has put in you. So I suppose the main question is, what are your hearts clinging to? There's a, a definition of, of, of an idol being a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. Our hearts are designed to stick to God because in God, we flourish. He, he gives us everything we need for life and godliness. He, he, builds us up, up, he builds us up. But idols, when we make those things, the things that our hearts cling to, it diminishes us. It makes us smaller. When we trust in a created thing to do what the uncreated should do, to control our lives, to give us meaning and purpose. A created thing cannot give you the same meaning and purpose that God can, because it's finite. It cannot see the immense capacity and potential that's in each one of us, those God seeds that are planted in there. And the Holy Spirit grows those things in us, and that's, and that's what makes us bigger. When the Spirit of God is in us, we share in the infinite, the eternal. When we cling to other things, the Holy Spirit can't grow us because our heart is small. And I was reminded about um, the parable of the sower, about how the rocks in the soil prevent the roots from going deep. And I think idols are like that in our lives. Um, they prevent us growing strong because they get in the way of what God is wanting to do. Um, and I listened to a sermon about um, idols this week, not surprisingly, um, and, uh, uh, by Tim Keller. And he was talking about um, how if we don't address the idols, if we don't uproot them and take them away, um, we'll become like Solomon and we'll be led astray. Um, they, they, get, they, they prevent us from living in the gospel. Yes. They prevent us from ac accessing the grace that God has poured out for us by his son. Um, and I, I, my son is also very interested at the moment in, in Aladdin, and this might sound um, interesting to you, but I'm trying to think about how do you, you express um, or explain to a two-and-a-half-year-old um, the, the idea of a villain, you know? Because I don't want him to, to think that there are good people and bad people, because that's not true. That's not, that's not real. There aren't bad people. There are people who make bad choices, and there are people who make good choices. Um, and God grows in 
But there's capacity for love in everybody, as I've already said. And we want to feed the thing that grows the love, right? Not feed the thing that quashes the love. So there's Javar, and he's standing at the Cave of Wonders, and um, he's about to, 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 to stab Aladdin. Now, this is all quite violent and a bit gruesome for a two-and-a-half-year-old, and you think, grief, I maybe I shouldn't be watching this with my son. Um, but I, I, it struck me, I said, there's a man who doesn't have love in his heart for God or for other people. And, and you know, it's one of those things, when you're talking to your children, suddenly you have these sort of ideas and revelations yourself. They're like, oh, actually, that's, that's quite profound. There's no love in that man's heart for God, so he doesn't choose the moral the right way. And because there's no love in his heart for God, there's no love in his heart for people, which means he will hurt he will lie, he will steal, and he will manipulate because he's got love in his heart for one thing, that lamp that he wants, because that lamp will give him power um, and prestige and wealth and all, that's, all the selfish desires. That lamp, that genie, that's an idol for Javar, that's the thing his heart is clinging to. And because his heart is clinging to that, there's no love in his heart for anything else. And um, this is sort of what the scriptures are saying um, in Jeremiah 2, um, 11 to 13, and I'll read that to you. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the springs of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So what happens there is, instead of going to the source, the thing that, that will give you good water, you try and do it yourself. And that's, and that's the process of worshipping another god, is doing it yourself. Because <laughs> he's saying, the gods, these gods that you worship, they aren't anything at all. It says, yet they are not gods at all. The scriptures say that they are dumb. They, are, they have no eyes. They cannot see. They cannot hear. You think of Elijah at Mount Carmel. He, he mocks the, the priests of Baal and says, where is your God? Is he sleeping? He is silent. These idols are silent. In your time of need, they will not help you. And we look to things for control, for, to be able to control our own destinies. And we look for thing, to things for meaning and purpose. And yet, idols are not able to give us any of those things. <laughs> the scriptures also talk about how it's kind of foolish because you take a, a block of wood and you, you carve it into an idol and bow down and worship it and try to find meaning and purpose with this, this block of wood. And on the other part, you, you, you put it in the fire and you cook your food over it. You burn it. Um, and to, to make that maybe a, a more um, uh, modern example is we take paper, you cut down a tree, we make paper. Some of it we turn into money. Well... Not, not anymore, we're making money out of plastic anymore, but we used to, turn into money. 
And then the other, other, other part of it, we put through the same processing plant, make it a bit softer, and then we put it on the loo roll, and we, we use it for something else. It's foolish. Don't look to money to give you meaning or purpose. And that's just one example. I mean, you, the thing with, with idols being potentially a good thing, that you make an ultimate thing, is that it could be something that is appropriate to love. But it's when you love it inappropriately. So, um, I've often, well, not often, but certainly early on in my marriage, um, I had this conversation with Gary, because he would, he would say all these wonderful things, and he'd lift me up really high, and I knew that it was not true. I just knew. And I said to him, love, you can't, you can't put me too high, because I'm going to let you down. We need to be careful. Even, even those things that are good and blessings and that we're meant to love, we can't make it our ultimate love. We can't go to them for our, our, our purpose, our meaning. Um, I love my kids, but I can't make my, my little boy my idol. I can't make, make him something that I will do anything for, in a sense. Because actually there are limits to that too. If I lift my boy higher than God, I will destroy both him and me. Because I restrict the capacity of love in my heart. And I start to use him for other things. We need to worship God. Because he is the fountain of living water. In him is life. Everything else broken cistern, it holds no water. And it's all about a relationship with him. Yeah? Because we can, we can know about God and we can, um, we can try to please God, but in, in some sense, he is the wronged party. Let me, let me go back a step. The, the idolatry is often spoke about in the scriptures as a wife being unfaithful to her husband. And the incredible thing is, God has been the one that, that was wronged. We wronged him. And yet he was the one who came to us to bring reconciliation. We're the guilty party. But his son, Jesus Christ, came. to bring us back to him because he, he doesn't want us to be diminished. He wants us to flourish. He wants our capacity for love to grow. And the only way we can displace those idols is not to look at them more and go, oh, I must get rid of you, kick, kick, because that focuses on the idol. The only way to get rid of that idol is to look to Jesus. Because it's no effort of ours that can, can get those hearts better. His cross is the only place where idols are dislodged. There's a song that says, um, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full on his wonderful face, and all of the things, all of the earth, these things that grow strangely dim in the light of his glory 
and grace. So we as individuals, like Solomon, need to be aware of those things that are diminishing us, those idols in our hearts. But we as, 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 a, as a collective people need to be pointing people to Jesus and not doing things that can lead people to be diminished. So there was a, there's a, an example in um, Corinthians. Paul is writing to this church in Corinthians. And um, it's about food sacrificed to idols. Now, this is quite foreign to us because we don't do this anymore. Um, the, the, the pagan festivals, they would have, um, there'd be a temple and then they would go and they would sacrifice their meat and then have a big feast and then, you know, they would sell the meat in the marketplace and you would, you would potentially eat that meat. And so, just read this passage to you quickly um, and then we might just, just, just talk about it a little bit. Um, it's 1 Corinthians 8. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and from whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificed, sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we eat it, and no, worse, no better if we do. Sorry, we are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating at an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Now, eating meat is kind of the irrelevant point here. The idea is that we have knowledge. But knowledge is not something that is going to increase somebody's capacity for love. It says knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. So whatever you do, be pointing people to Jesus and be careful of using your freedoms. Because sometimes somebody will see that and think, oh, oh I can do that. Oh, that's allowed. And then they do it. But actually, for them, it's a problem. For them, it might lead them astray. I don't think Solomon's wives meant him any ill intent, but they led him astray. Because just 
just like that Velcro is sticky, there's stuff that will start to tear it apart, will get in between it and start to pull you away from the Lord. And we need to guard against it. And we need to guard against it for our brothers and sisters as well. So as a community, we must love one another. And so sometimes, <laughs> whether it be ideology or pleasurable pastime or whatever, it doesn't matter what it is. If it turns somebody's face from Jesus to something else, that's not being loving. That's being knowledgeable and puffed up. So I encourage you, please, be loving. Be loving. Lord Jesus, help us. Help us. Help us to bow to you only. Help us to worship in spirit and in truth. And help us to love you and love others as you have given us the capacity to do so. In your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Amen. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarrington.com.